This is the second cassette in the series, The Orthodox Church in Alaska. This cassette is a continuation of the first lecture, The Diverse Cultures of Siberia and Alaska, as new fields for the seed of the gospel. The goals and objectives of the traditional educational system would be to have everyone in the next generation know who they are, to understand where they fit in the cosmic scheme of things, and lastly, to respectfully relate to the world around them. To respectfully relate to the prey means to know how to kill them respectfully. How, what to do immediately afterwards. In, in many cultures, once an animal is killed, the first thing you have to do is put water in its mouth because its spirit must now leave its body. And the journey to the world, the spirit world is hard and difficult, and so you give it water in its mouth, usually, to um, refresh it for this journey to the world, the spirit world, from which it will return, it will be reincarnate, it's believed, uh, provided it's happy the way it was treated. If it's mistreated, it won't come back, and then that's that much less food for the next year or the next generation, whatever. Um, it has to be butchered carefully and respectfully. It has to be eaten respectfully. And this provides a very different etiquette system in traditional cultures than Emily Post from our own, you know, out of the book etiquette. Just think about this for a minute. Uh, good manners in our culture means whatever you do, do it quietly and neatly. And all the equipment you have is geared to allow you to, to eat quietly and neatly. Uh, and in traditional cultures, etiquette is geared to wasting nothing. So that if you have to pick something up with your fingers to get the meat out off the bone, that's perfectly appropriate because you don't want to leave any meat on it. Otherwise, you see, the animal died for nothing. You killed it and wasted it. And, you know, and most traditional cultures have a very reverential attitude toward food. It's not just a matter of saying grace and being respectful in that sense. It's not to waste, uh, not to allow things to spoil, not to put on your plate more than you're going to eat, really to clean your plate as a sign of respect as well as gratitude because to waste it means that whatever effort went into providing it was wasted effort. And everything we eat, don't forget, requires death. We have to kill the plant and grind it up usually in order to ingest it. We have to kill the animal, the fish, whatever, in order to digest it. In order for it to become our life, it has to die. It's, an important, it's even an important theological observation because it means that whatever food we eat, no matter how natural or pure, is still communion with death. That's why it's so important Christ says, I am the living bread. It's a different kind of food. But here, people are very much aware that it is precisely because they have to do it with their own hands. If, if we had to go to a slaughterhouse and grind up every cow we ever ate as hamburger, we'd probably never go to McDonald's again. <laughs> Not just because it's messy, but because we'd see that things have to die to give us this culinary experience, you see. 
Uh, uh, but these people were directly involved in that, and they were almost apologetic about the fact that their lives depended on the death of other creatures. I learned this the hard way by eating muskrat one time, and uh, uh, we had been out hunting, and we came back with these muskrat. We were duck hunting, but the ducks didn't cooperate. So we came home with muskrat. The muskrat were skinned. They were going to be somebody's parka someday. There weren't that many. It would take many more muskrat to make a parka. But um, in any case, the... Um, Mu the uh, muskrat meat was boiled, and we got, I got a bowl about this big with one muskrat in it. <laughs> I didn't quite know what to do with this. No knife, no fork, just a muskrat in a bowl. <laughs> and I had to watch the elders. What else do you do when you're young and inexperienced? You watch the older ones, they're the ones who know. And they went right in there and took it all apart, and it was lot very noisy. Emily Post would not have appreciated it. <laughs> So I was right there with the others. And when I was all done, the cook came to me and said, Takutin ka, you're done, aren't you? I said, E, yes. She started to take my bowl away, but not with her usual smile and nod to let me know I had done the right thing. It wasn't a frown either, but I knew I had done something wrong, so I quickly changed my answer. Taksaita, I said, I'm not done yet. She put my bowl back and walked away, except I didn't know why I wasn't done yet. <laughs> So I had to watch those elders again. And the elders were taking their muskrat bones apart, bone by bone by bone. It didn't seem like it was worth the time and energy, because it took like 20 more minutes to get 2% more meat. It wasn't because they were that hungry that they had to devour every morsel. I found out later those bones were put back in the river. And when the, when the bones were returned to the place where the muskrat came, you say a little prayer, actually, Chalitaikina, come back. And if you have been respectful through the whole cycle of hunting, butchering, cooking, eating, and using every possible portion of the animal respectfully, they'll come back. And if you have violated it, don't expect muskrat. That's the world these people lived in, respectfully relating to the animals, respectfully relating to each other. In every traditional culture, the name is one of the most sacred possessions. We talk about it still in the pro proverbial terms, your good name, your, to mean your reputation, or to make a name for yourself, you see, to make it a good name, you know, not a disgrace, and so forth. We, there's things still exist in our culture, but for these cultures, the name is like a possession. In Klinket culture, it's handed down like a title. And the person who had it before you has got to die first for you to receive it. It's sort of like Charles, Prince of Wales. He'll be Charles III someday, but his mother, Elizabeth II, will have to retire or die before he can be King Charles III. And that's, of course, up to Lady Di, too. So he has, doesn't have his real name in a certain sense, but he'll get it by inheritance eventually. Well, that's true of every kid in Clinket country. They'll get their real name, but it's the name that will be handed down to them according to their genealogy and lineage. And it's like a title, and you don't want to disgrace that name. And when you say that name, everyone knows who your mother was, who your father was, who your aunts and uncles were, because everyone knows what lineage you are by virtue of the name you have. Eskimo culture is quite different. They have an open naming system. There are no genders, there are no boys' names and girls' names. What happens is an elder may die, say a man, 
And if he's very highly respected in the community, two, three, four, five, six, maybe a dozen kids, not only in that village, but neighboring villages, will receive that man's name because his parents will name their children after that elder. Well, you don't know this because it's not something you put in the newspaper, but the widow hears who has been named for her deceased husband. And she visits these babies. Now, this is when I first experienced it. The widow comes in the house, she goes up to the cradle, she bends over the bed, she talks to the baby and she says, literally, and how's my husband today? <laughs> now, Granny's 90, the kid's nine days old. Has she lost it? You, know, you really don't know what's happening until you realize they have named the baby after her husband. And she brings gifts to this baby. And the baby's family brings fish or subsistence food to the widow. And they bring her 10 king salmon and they say, your husband sends you this. But her husband's this little girl who's only 10 days old now. The woman is 90. She has 60-year-old kids. They call this little girl dad. And when you multiply this times that family and every other family in the community, you realize that everyone is related to everybody. Because you especially name children after people you're not related to. We usually do it to people we are. They do it to people we're not. So that it can establish a relationship where otherwise no relationship would have existed. So all of this is the culture that's invisible that newcomers to rural Alaska would never imagine is even there. And you see some strange practices. You see pregnant ladies going through doorways very quickly. You know, <laughs> but you have to be very observant to notice that. You know, there, there are hundreds of these kinds of behaviors that are passed on in order to fill life with keros. In order to fill life with keros. Meaningful actions that repeat the patterns that have been handed down from generation to generation to be a human, in order to make us human. Now, you, you pass this on with the sacred stories, and then the legends are those stories which reinforce the sacred ones. New mic. The legends are the stories where the, usually they don't do the right thing and pay the price. They didn't happen in the beginning of the storyline. They happened somewhere in history, actually. But they reinforce the sacred stories, the, the stories that contain the patterns, uh, because they show you what happens if you don't. And there are lots more of those than there are uh, the sacred stories themselves. Then there's the art and the music of the people, which derive from both the sacred stories and the legends. Everybody has songs that come out of the legendary characters. Plinkett sings songs of the men who performed heroically because they learned their lessons well. The songs, by the way, may have nonsensical lyrics, but that doesn't matter. We have those in our culture, too. Name this holiday. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Everybody knows, but only if you're in this culture. You know, say that to a Japanese, they say, what are you saying? Right? <laughs> If you're in the culture, you recognize which song goes with which holiday and which event. Same thing here. The traditional songs may not translate well. You have to know the whole context in order to understand why it's important. Context is the key. The, the art and the music refer back to and derive from the, song, the, stories, the sacred stories and the legends. Then you have the annual ceremonies. 
the annual ceremonies reenact in song and dance, one could say in ritual form, the important events of the mythic history. So it's very much, in a sense, like what we do at Vespers. You don't so much sit down and tell the story, you sing about it. It starts with the singing or chanting of the psalm, not the reading of Genesis 1, but the singing of the celebration of the event, not just the event. Christmas carols are the same kind of thing, aren't they? they you, if you had all the, one Christmas carol, you wouldn't know the whole story, but get about 10 of them together and you'll get shepherds, kings, mangers, Bethlehem, star, you know, all the parts of the story. In the scripture, it's a very short passage. The celebration, however, has many facets. <laughs> Same thing here. There are lots of songs and dances that go into the ceremonies that are really the continuation of the theme, the story back here, which could be a relatively short story. But the rest of it goes on and on and on. And lastly, we have the shaman. The shaman, Icht in Klingit. Anachguk in Yupik and in Suchbeak is the person, it's believed, has found the way back to the spirit world above or the spirit world below. By the way, we all get to make this journey, but for most people it's a one-way trip. The shaman is the person, it's believed, male or female, who has been there and returned. He or she has done what the first people could all easily do, and having found the way and the way back, they can, if needed, repeat the journey. It's as if they found Jacob's ladder, have ascended and returned, or descended. They can drown, you see, they can fall into the imachbik. But reviving from that experience, they now have a spiritual intensity to them that the rest of us lack. It would be what we might call in the late 20th century an out-of-the-body experience. It's very individual. No two shamans have the same experience. But the culture believes that they're now in touch, having died, really, and not resurrected, but re resuscitated. Their soul having left their body, their spirit having departed from this world, and then returned. They know things the rest of us don't know, the same way the animals know things the rest of us don't know, the same way the first people new things the rest of us don't know. And therefore they perform a prophetic ministry within the people. If, for example, the ecological balance is off and the animals are withholding themselves, that's a spiritual problem in this culture because there's been a spiritual violation of the norms. How do you, know, how do you find out, first of all, what the problem is? And secondly, how do you fix it? Call your shaman. And maybe he or she can fix it, and maybe they can't, because no two shamans are alike. It's sort of like calling specialists today, you see? Maybe this is the guy who knows the drug or knows the therapy that will fix you, and maybe not. You have to go shopping some more. And maybe there's no one on earth who can do it. That's another possibility, of course. But here's the thing. For thousands of years, people went to their ich, their angashkuk. And this person who had had, it's believed, this experience of a higher spiritual reality, was able to help some of the time, not all of the time. They were able to heal people some of the time, not all of the time. But sooner or later, remember, every doctor loses all his patients. We forget that in the 21st century. We've forgotten that human beings are mortal 
And so we increasingly have, as a pastor, I face this problem, dealing with older people who still thought they would never die and have never given their own death any thought. While in fact, you know, these stories helped people in these cultures understand the basic patterns and structures and passages of life. Yes, you move from youth to childhood and from childhood to teen adolescence and adolescence to adulthood and to maturity and then to a status of being an elder yourself and then the passage to the next life. But the, everybody understood that since they were kids. People talked about these things, these patterns, remember, that never change. Into all of this came the gospel. Two things I'll say and we'll be finished for tonight. One is, our missionaries took the time to figure this out, to their credit. Like any good planter, you know what kind of soil you're planting in. You don't just waste it, throw it, because chances are nothing will happen. You make sure you understand the context into which you are introducing this seed. And our missionaries in Alaska took their first year and wrote nothing but reports well, they had other problems, so there's other things in the reports, come to think of it. But what their focus was, was the traditional beliefs of the native people of Alaska. They gathered what we would consider now, the science didn't exist in their day, but they gathered ethnographic material. What do these people already know? And they're surprised. They said, 1795, Father Yosaf wrote back to Vala Monastery and said, these people basically have the Ten Commandments already. They even have a flood story. And the, the Koyukan even have a flood story the animals go on two by two. And, and the, the missionaries say, this is, should be astounding to us. Now remember, our monks from Valam were not professional missionaries. They hadn't been trained in any anthropology or anything. But this is their approach. I think it comes out of two things. It comes out of the, their awareness of how the Cyril and Methodius evangelized their people first. They didn't treat them as barbarians and that their language is no good and all this other stuff. But secondly, remember, and we'll come to this in the two lectures from now, they had to walk most of the way to Alaska, across Siberia. There are no Marriott's or Holiday Inns along the route. But they were monks. Where do you think they stopped night after night, town after town? Logically, in the nearest monastery. We don't have religious orders, you know. A monk is a monk. Two, three, five, nine, eight monks show up. They were on the way from Finland to Alaska, and they'd already crossed half of Siberia. You can be sure they were welcomed as, as special guests in each monastic community they entered. And those communities, each one of them in their own time, had been beyond the frontier, because that's where, that's where monasteries go, not the middle of town. They're usually beyond the frontier. Then the frontier caught up with them, you see. But when they were founded, they too were in the midst of people just like this. I would love to, I'm, I don't think there's any such record, but I would love to know what they talked about, our missionaries on their way to Alaska, as they crossed Siberia where the gospel had already been introduced, mostly by monks and mostly by the example of the monastic communities as they went out into the forest beyond the frontier of the empire themselves. We have stories of such missionary monasteries across Siberia. But you see, our missionaries coming to Alaska reviewed that history as they came. So they weren't operating in the dark when they got here. 
They knew some of these things and what to look for before they even arrived because the others in Siberia had clued them in. Unbeknownst, certainly the hand of God, unbeknownst to their superior back in Finland, they were already getting a good missiological education as they came across the steppes and tundra and taiga of, of Asia on their way to America. So they didn't come into it blind. They didn't come in thinking that there was nothing there. They didn't believe that they were entering a spiritual vacuum when they arrived. And they did not treat the native people as inferior, backward, stupid, or ignorant. Instead, they write pages about the stories and the legends, and they make favorable comments about what these people already believe. Now, the, the evidence, therefore, is that they took the time, as any good teacher does, to do a kind of pretest. You don't have to teach what your students already know. You build on that. And one last thing I promise to relate to you, why did they need the gospel at all? Well, I paint you a very sort of positive insider's view of what, how this culture works. But please note how terribly fragile life was. First of all, all those humanoids are on your borders and you have no idea who will be stronger than whom if they'll attack you, kill all of you, enslave all of you, because those are the two options, remember? You have great fear of all these people different from yourselves. That's one level of insecurity on the human level. There's a second level of, of uh, insecurity on the cosmic level, because the legends reinforce this. Any child, even in ignorance, can upset the cosmic balance. Any, any little girl sitting in her seclusion, getting bored and saying the wrong thing can bring disaster on the community. In other words, life is so fragile. You live in constant anxiety. On one hand, you can admire their, one could say, appreciation of the ecological balance and the need to be in harmony with nature. True, but nature is capricious. There's no security there. This year there's floods, the next year there's droughts. This year the animals give themselves, next year you can't find them. Starvation, disease, but more than anything, fear. Fear permeates these cultures. No one there will talk about it because they wouldn't notice. But, it's, but when you talk to elders today, as I have, what did Christianity bring to you? Peace? St. Yaakov Netzvetov, we'll talk about him. I think it's the most glorious day in his life when he baptizes people of former warring tribes. And this is a contribution that evangelists, evangelists are very seldom given credit for. Um, they bring peace and they bring a, a freedom, a release from fear that, that the culture by itself could never have produced. There are elements of this on which Christianity can be built, and our missionaries did that. And how they did that, we'll talk about tomorrow and the next day. But it's not, to, I, I didn't, I have to say that although there's a lot of good, a lot of wisdom, a lot of things we ourselves can benefit from, from these traditional cultures. And I go around Alaska reminding people of that, 
that we, that we don't dare lose these cultures. These, these endangered cultures should be as, as protected as endangered animal species. Because once they're gone, you can't build them again. And once they're destroyed, there's no replacing them. And once they're extinct, you can't bring them back. The EAC language, that kind of a tan one right in the middle of the arc of the Alaska, right here, this one, by Cordova, two people speak that language. Thousands of years worth of, of information, of wisdom, and of knowledge will be lost because one of those speakers is a linguist in Fairbanks. And the lady who still speaks the language has nobody else to talk to. I mean, we're down to that. And if you look at this map carefully, the colored maps, the black dots, mean most of the kids in that village are still speaking the language. The half-colored dots mean only some of the kids, and the open circles mean few or none. And most of Alaska is already covered with few or none which means that most of this kind of tradition and worldview is in our lifetime disappearing. No one under 50 speaks Klingit. So none of the kids can understand any of the stories passed on by their elders because there's a complete break between generations. How that came about, we'll talk about later, but you can see that that's the negative side of the Alaskan experience. The positive side is that it should remind us, I believe, that while church school materials are necessary, and religious education classes are necessary, and certainly sermons from the Amvon are necessary. Nothing replaces the telling of the sacred stories, generation across generational lines in the family. I should repeat that maybe, but that's the moral of the story, so to speak, for us as Christians and Christian educators and missionaries of everything I said tonight. Nothing replaces the telling of the sacred stories across generational lines in the family. Church school can't do it. The priest in the parish on Sunday alone can't do it, no matter how charismatic your pastor is. The stories have to be put in, so to speak, by people we know, love, and trust, not by authority figures, and it can't be done by books alone. They must be told. I'm convinced of that. The stories must be told. And they must be told in the, in the comfort and maybe the, the privacy of our homes. We need to read Bible stories to our kids. We need to talk about the church and its worship and the Christian life. And we can't hand it over to some third party. Even in the parish, the priest, of course, the pastor will do his best to try to encourage all the kids to listen, to apply these. But if it's not done in the home, it's like fertile soil that never got watered. We need to take responsibility for the telling of the stories. Our ancestors tell us that. These cultures remind us of that. And they, we also need to take responsibility for helping young girls to become young women boys to become men. It doesn't happen in the public school, I'll guarantee you that. It's not even discussed. And it's so confusing nowadays. It was easier when everybody grew up to follow in their father's footsteps. That hasn't happened in a hundred years. See, we're in a different context again here, and we need, how, need to know how to pass on who you are as a Christian, where you fit in the universe as an Orthodox Christian and how to relate to God 
and the whole communion of saints and angels in heaven and the church on earth, and then your fellow human beings of all religions and all cultures and all races. And we can go a little step further. And as an Orthodox Christian, how do we relate to the natural world? This message is continued on side two. And we can go a little step further. And as an Orthodox Christian, how do we relate to the natural world? Because the church teaches us how to relate to water and the earth and the elements. We have rites of blessing for these things. It's there, you see, and you can already see, I don't even have to probably lecture much about this, how all of this translates to Orthodox Christianity. Because what the missionaries bring, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow, is the one element they could have never guessed. You see, the life force in all the animals and all the plants that had to be respected among the Inupiaks was called Inua. And among the Yupiks, it's called Yua. It obviously relates to the very thing that people call themselves. The, it doesn't quite mean spirit, and it doesn't quite mean soul. It, the closest thing we might be able to translate is the essential life force that makes that thing to be alive, to be what it is. And in the seventh century, our church actually discussed that. And the Ecumenical Council defined it and, and uh, promulgated it. There is such a life force that makes everything to be what it is. It's the logos of each thing with a lowercase l. And all the logi of the world are contained within and originate in and return to the, the one true logos, capital L, Jesus Christ. So the life force that the people were reverencing in the plant or the animal or whatever needs to be reverenced. But it's not the yuwa or the inuwa of the muskrat or the owl or the eagle. It's all Christ. They could have never guessed this personal identity, you see. That's the key piece to the whole story. They never would have known. And then if you're in the proper relationship to him, the logos, the word of God, you're automatically in proper relationship to all the others. You see? They could have never figured that out. It's not something the Hebrews could have figured out. You see, they had all the prophecies, but when it was fulfilled, even the apostles, right before their eyes, they didn't, they didn't realize it until Christ came and even scolded them, slow to believe in heart of heart. How much, how, what do I have to do? Even after the resurrection, he scolds them. You, you were so slow to believe, and yet I fulfilled everything and you didn't notice? precisely because it wasn't fulfilled exactly the way they expected it. They had to be told. It had to be spelled out. The story had to be preached. Same thing here. Christianity always comes not just to fulfill, but also to transform whatever was there before. How our missionaries pulled that off, how they did that, that's another story which we'll have later on. But for now, you see, I really believe positive view, and so much I've learned from these cultures. I finally understood Perhaps the, my favorite definition of what it means to be a Christian from the writings of Father Alexander Schmemann, who at the end of For the Life of the World, his classic book, defines a Christian this way. A Christian is a person who, wherever he or she looks, 
sees Christ and rejoices in him. You see how that resonates with this culture? In a way that probably never occurred to you. But there's nothing wrong with the way the seed gets planted there and gets interpreted there and takes on a new and exciting dimension that it didn't in our culture. And when we talk about the Logos, which is the first gospel that got translated into all these languages, the Paschal Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Him was life. To say that everything's alive, is alive because it's the power, and even one, one could say the presence of Christ in it. And to see Christ in all things and rejoice. But these people were ready to see it, Him that way, in a way that perhaps we 20th century literate, well-educated folks might not. So that soil was rich. That soil was fertile. It was ready, provided the seed could be planted carefully, understanding the soil into which it was entering. And that was the great genius of our saints. It took saints to do it. Saint Herman will talk about. Saint Juvenali will talk about. Saint Innocent Vinyaminov, whose 200th birthday is less than three weeks away now, and Saint Yaakov Netsvyatov. They'll be the themes of my future talks. But I really believe that that's the connection they saw. And that's the foundation on which the church in Alaska is built. And the people embraced it as the fulfillment and the transformation of what they already had. So that orthodoxy, when the Russians went home and there was no more money and there were hardly any priests, not only survived but grew from 12 parishes to 87. No sociological evidence or analysis can explain how that could be, except the rules of sociology and secular analysis do not take into account the Holy Spirit. Not by our worthy or unworthy actions, prayers, programs, finances, support, or lack of any of them did the church survive in Alaska, but on the, by the prayers and intercessions of those saints who planted the seed in this soil respecting these people for what they already knew and building upon it, transforming their lives and enriching the lives of all of us in the process. That's what we're going to talk about in my succeeding lectures, which I hope won't be so much over time. But thank you very much for your attention.